I was most excited about this particular sermon today because of the park, Denali National Park, which is in Alaska. It was the, um, the only park that I went to BC before children. And so I have really fond memories of it. Not that children made other ones not fond, but it was just, you know, it's just different. As we say, you know, when you go on vacation, once you have children, it's not vacation, it's a trip. This was a vacation. And so, um, I don't know if you have been to Denali Park, but it's, it's very different than the ones that are in the lower 48. You, you go and you can't drive. You, there's, there's nobody's allowed to drive in. And the only way to get further into the park are through their buses. And, and these are non-air-conditioned, just, just old-school buses. And, and there's no paths. There's very few designated hiking paths. When you are ready to get off, you pull the, the, the little levee and then it stops and you get off and you just begin to go hiking. And so at some point my dad decides we're getting out here. We've gone in maybe 12, 15 miles into the park. We get out, we start on our hike and it's just the seven of us. This is just me and my four sisters and me and my three sisters and my mom and my dad and I'm the only one that's married at this point. So Charlie's with us. And we're just hiking along and, and Charlie and my dad are getting a little bit further and further away from us because they're just so excited to have that guy time. And at some point we're going up this ridge and it's all like these tiny little shale rocks. It's like no other park, there's no trees. It's just tundra. It's so, the winters are so harsh there that, that there's no, nothing grows high. And so you're just going into these vast expanses and up and down and you're sliding because of the shale that you're walking on. And we're going up this hilly little, this hilly knoll and my mom steps on a yellow jacket nest and I'm right behind her. And so the yellow jackets fly at my face and I get stung. And I, I knew that I had some form of minor bee allergy, but nothing to really worry about. Well, I get stung and I say, ow, and we just keep going. And, I'm taking more steps and, and then it, my vision starts to be affected and I'm like, mom, how swollen is my face? And she's like, it's real swollen. It's looking not good. And then I began to feel like the, the lip pulsing out and the nose and the eye. And so I, I didn't have a mirror. I didn't have a cell phone. Um, I didn't know how I looked. And she made the decision we probably should head back. And the way you head back is you just walk back towards the road. Because again, there's no paths. So we go back towards the road and we're walking along waiting for one of the buses, because that's what you do. And then the bus comes and picks us up. We get on the bus and then we drive for several miles and then we see my dad and Charlie come out because they're ready to get on the bus. And I'm, I peek out the window and I'm like, Charlie, Charlie. And he's, he's like, he keeps walking. And I was like, babe, it's me. And he was like, good. God, what happened to your face in total horror because I had this Quasimodo thing going on. And I was like, it's Emily. And then they got on and that's the end of that story. But I had called his name. He knew my voice. And because of what it looked like, he didn't recognize it. And as I reflected on this specific story, in this specific park, I was drawn to the prophet Isaiah. Because I think one of the biggest struggles that we have right now and that we have had throughout so much of history has been that we don't know when God is calling our name. 
because it doesn't look the way we think it's gonna look. Or maybe our circumstances aren't one in which we think God can even speak into. And so I was drawn to the prophet Isaiah because over and over in the prophet Isaiah, he is reminding the people of Israel who are in such a bad situation, like God has not left you. You, you are not alone. And so we are gonna to turn to the chapter, to 43rd chapter for our passage today. Will you begin with me with prayer? Gracious and loving God, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are always so tuned in to your children, that you love us so much that you never leave us or forsake us, even when it feels like that. And so God, this morning, wherever we are in our relationship with you, our belief in you, may this day we remember who you say we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here now from the 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah, but now the, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this specific passage, Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel three things. God is your creator, God is the one who forms you, and God is your redeemer. And we know this because when he says God created you and God formed you, he's using the same exact Hebrew words that they would have heard for decades from Genesis 1. So the God that is speaking to them now in 6th century BCE is the same God who they've heard about, that God who spoke and then life was created, the God who said, I have created every living thing, the God who took dirt, autumn, and then breathed life into it and it became Adamah. That God also created you. That God who maybe you thought was kind of finished with the creative work? No, because God is creating you. The prophet was reminding the exiled Israelites, that God of your ancestors, that God says, you also, you too, you are mine. To put it plainly, every single human, every single human is a creation of God. There are not any humans in the past or present or in the future that are out of God's creative power. Dare I say, this means that the determining factor in someone being a child of God is not what the other children of God determine. It is not even dependent on that individual's awareness if they are a child of God. That brings me a lot of peace. You are a child of God the Israelites and us. We really struggle to, to live into, okay, so if I'm a child of God, what does that actually mean for how I live my daily life? Is, is there some consequence or some assurance that I am supposed to have? Because the Israelites did not get it. 
They did not see the real life implications for this fact. And so when they are sent into exile by the Babylonians, they leave their land. They leave the land that has been promised to them by their forefathers. And when they are conquered, they assumed that their chosenness and that their value and that their worth, well, it went away because they had identified it in a certain way. It was supposed to be in this place. It was supposed to look this way. This was how their God, the God of Israel, worked. And when they were sent away from that place, they felt like their worth, identity, purpose, and even their God, well, it stayed behind. Some Israelites were so desperate when they were in exile, they were so desperate to be tied to place that they went back to Egypt. They went back to the place where they had heard their ancestors had been slaves. They went back there because what did Egypt have that they didn't have in exile? Stuff. It had horses, chariots, armies, and it had a whole bunch of little G gods. And they were willing to take that because it was attractive, it was something, it was sure. And their God, their God had stayed had stayed back in Israel and had abandoned them. Humans have always been so good at demeaning their inherent worth as children of God, at easily forgetting. And we love a good story, don't we? We love a good book or a movie where the main character forgets who they are. And then at some point there's this aha moment and you can just see it. There's this internal change and they are realizing I am worthy. I am worth it. And whether they realize it or not, as people of faith, we know that that's God that did that. That they are realizing I am enough, just me. Years ago, I was sitting in this room with my previous church staff and the pastors and we're sitting around doing sermon planning for this new sermon series we were gonna do in January on the seven deadly sins. And it's like the pastors and the senior pastor, Lane Alderman is on one end and on the other end, because she was the last in the room, is our seminary intern, Lauren. And Lane begins and he says, I, I feel like before we even think about this sermon series that we need to go ahead and name that really the greatest sin, the sin that is the root of all the other six is pride. Because in my experience, it is always us thinking too highly of ourselves, thinking too much about us over other people that leads us to then betray another with lust, to then betray another with greed, to treat ourselves badly in a gluttonous way. And we all kind of just Yes, sir, him. And then Lauren speaks up. And she said, that's just, that's just how it hasn't been for me. Can I offer a different perspective? Now, granted, she was like 15 years younger than everybody in the room. And she was currently living in this amazing community in Atlanta called the Open Door Community. It actually closed in 2017. But up to that point, this was just a house, this two-story house on Ponce de Leon, right in the middle of the financial district. And it was a place where homeless people could come every day and take showers. 
It was a place where homeless could, people could come and get foot care and they could set up a P.O. box there if they needed to or get their social security card. And they always had a few people living there to oversee this ministry. And so Lauren was living there and she said to us, the people that I see every day, their, their sin is not one of being too full of self, it is of having no self. They feel like there is nothing worth being. They don't have any sense of pride. It's a, it's a completely the opposite. They are empty. And as I reflected on this passage, I feel like this is still one of the greatest struggles that humans face today. As many as we would say struggle with being full, there are as many who feel so less than who do not accept that they are enough. They haven't reached their aha moment. If this is you this morning, I want you to hear these words of Isaiah. God says, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. In our passage, the prophet is giving encouragement and hope to a people who have lost it. They are in a place where they are feeling less than. God has not done what God said God would do, or so it seems. But see, they are about to be on the move again because they know that the Assyrians have lost and they are about to be able to head back into Israel. And the prophet tells them, you are going to pass through waters and flames and rivers but I have called you by name, you are mine. And now this is the promise, this is poetry. God is not saying you're never, just because you're mine doesn't mean you don't have fires or rivers or floods. That is, I wish I could tell you that we get some safety bubble around us when we follow Jesus, but it's just not one of the promises in scripture I've looked. The promise is that I will be with you. You see, this is one of the things, y'all, that really distinguished the Israelite God from the little G gods all around them. And I will go so far to say this is what distinguishes our God from all the little G gods in our world right now. Is that the big God, our God says, you will pass through rivers and floods and fires. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to form you. That's gonna be something that I use to form you. And he, and he says, I have created you, O Jacob. I have formed you, O Israel. But y'all, forming, it doesn't feel good. It means something has to move around. Something has to be shaped. There is no one in the history of the world that's ever gonna reach a point where God says, I'm done until we are gone. There is always going to be God shaping and forming us. And, and I think it's, we see this in the verse where he says, you will pass. See, there's movement. When we were in Denali, we all were just so excited to see the grizzlies. We had seen grizzlies down on the coast in the Kenai area, and they are fierce and huge and scary because they eat fish. And they're big and they're thick and they're dangerous. But the grizzlies in Denali, they look like you just want to cuddle up with them. You don't, but they look like that. And, and as we're driving through, we pass caribou, and, and we even see a moose. 
We see those horned sheep going at it. And then someone spots this blonde, furry thing on a ridge. And they're blonde because, again, there's no trees, and so their fur just bleaches in the sun. And that little cub followed us for miles, and it never stopped. It would stop just to get something and go because, see, it has to be on the move to grow. They have to forage all day long, something like 15 hours a day during the summer. They have to forage for roots and for berries and for grubs, never stopping because that is how they are getting formed. Our bodies, our brains were literally created by God to change, to be formed. I have created you, O Jacob. I have formed you, O Israel. And so when you pass through the waters, God will be with you. You know, this verse, this section, it really has more to do with who God is than than who we are. God is the creator. God is the one who forms. And then lastly, God is the redeemer. Now this word redeemer is used all throughout the Hebrew Bible, but it is most often used in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and obviously in the book of Ruth. And it's to describe someone who comes in to redeem a woman. Someone who no longer has a spouse, someone who no longer has a son, someone who no longer has a father. And the Redeemer comes in and gives her worth, gives her an ability to go on with her life. But rarely, only in a few books of the Bible, is God called Redeemer, is God the one who comes alongside to rescue someone once in the book of Exodus, as he is trying to promise the Israelites what is ahead of them. When they are in their their slavery, he says, I will redeem you from slavery, once it's used. It's used once in the book of Job. Job, if you don't know that story, he experiences everything go wrong in his life. He is being tormented. His friends show up and at first they stay silent and then they open their mouths and they ruin the whole thing. And they begin to point to Job and to say, this suffering has come upon you because of something you have done. It is because of you. And they are shaming him. And at one point, Job says to them, all my intimate friends abhor me. Have pity on me, oh you, my friends. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh. And then he cries and he says, oh, if you could just understand my words, I wish they could be engraved in lead on a rock forever because this is what I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. God as Redeemer is most commonly found in the book of Isaiah to a people who need to know I have not forgotten you. I am your redeemer. I am the one who was with your ancestors in the past and will be with you, but it's not going to look like it is. You might be in exile. You might be in slavery. You might be covered in boils and have lost your entire family. God is redeemer to a people who have forgotten whose they are 
because of where they are. They have forgotten whose they are because of how they got to where they are. Over and over and over, God speaks to the Israelites, I am your redeemer. I am your redeemer. My very nature is to take stuff that's not looking redeemed and make it so. I am always stretching towards you. I am chasing after you. I'm gonna invite the band to come forward and they're gonna sing about this. They are going to sing and I pray that these words would be a blessing over you this morning that no matter the place or the physical circumstances of your lives this morning or yesterday or tomorrow, God says we are God's. Last week in my sermon, I told you about that amazing Bible study I did by Beth Moore called Believing God. And you know, it's these five tenets that, that you have to go through. And the first one is God is who God says God is. And the second one is, is that God will do what God says God will do. And those were actually okay and easy for me to get. It was that third tenet. I am who God says I am. You are mine. You are my beloved. Maybe so in my life and in yours.